we've been at funerals when parents have had to bury their children. We have stood next to piles of rubble as rescue workers have dug through trying to find survivors in the aftermath of a blast. I would be misleading to say it doesn't take a, a toll because it does. Hello and welcome to the interview. I'm Ada McLaughlin, the editor-in-chief of Mediaite. My guest this week is Trey Yingst, a foreign correspondent for Fox News covering the Middle East. Trey, who is 27, works out of the network's Jerusalem Bureau. In several years at Fox, he's covered the civil war in Yemen, the explosion in Beirut, the coronavirus crisis in Israel, and war crimes in Syria. I called up Trey on Wednesday after he wrapped up work at the Bureau. We discussed his reporting on the Israel-Palestine conflict, Biden withdrawing troops from Afghanistan, doing live shots on cable news as rockets fly overhead, and what's next for the Middle East. Trey, thanks for coming on the show. For sure, thanks for having me. So could you tell me where you're based right now? Where are you working out of? Yeah, so right now I'm, I'm based out of Israel and I'm living in Tel Aviv, working in Jerusalem, and it's a, it's exciting day to day. You know, things are changing a lot, but the region always has a lot of news coming out of it, so it's a good beat to be on. And you've been based in the, Euro, the Bureau for a couple of years now, right? Yeah, it'll be three years in August. And how are you liking working in Jerusalem? I love it. I mean, for someone who's interested in the news, especially foreign policy, there's always a story to tell here. And there's always something happening. You know, oftentimes we're living amid the story. And I think that it gives you a unique perspective because you can talk to people at the coffee shop or walking down the street and get a sense of what people are feeling about the story that you're about to go on air to talk about. So there's a lot going on in the region this year. Uh, there was the outbreak of violence between Israel and Hamas in Gaza a few months ago, and now U.S. troops are finishing off a withdrawal from Afghanistan, which is putting an end to, to a 20-year war. What is the biggest story that you're keeping an eye on from the Jerusalem Bureau? It's tough to give one story because you know we're following so many different stories at once, whether it's hmm. the recent proxy activity we've seen out of Iraq and Syria. I mean, just today, there was a rocket attack against a base in Iraq that houses U.S. troops. We're following the famine in Yemen, uh, the collapsing economy in Lebanon, and the images coming out of Beirut and Tripoli. So every day, it's shifting. Basically, wherever the news is that day, you know, we try to keep tabs on everything. And then what our offer is for the shows, it can vary from Afghanistan to this morning, we were covering the drone attack last night on the Erbil airport in Northern Iraq, Kurdistan. So it changes day to day. How much are you traveling between these countries? Cause you know, I, I see you do live reports from you know, uh, Israel, but also in Iraq. Um, how often are you on the road? When it's not Corona, we're traveling a lot. You know, obviously the pandemic mm -hmm. made it difficult. We were still traveling during that time, but it created scenarios where you'd have to test and then quarantine. And it was difficult based on the flow of, of just world travel. I think everyone had that same challenge, but Wherever the news is happening, we get there, whether it's our, our team here or our team in, in London. It's, it's basically a matter of who can get there in the, in the most efficient way possible. And a lot of times that's our team. So, you know, over the past year and a half, we've covered stories like the explosion in Lebanon on August 4th of last year and the mm -hmm. protests that erupted after that. We were on the ground in Baghdad when the Iranians responded to the drone strike taking out their top general, Qasem Soleimani. So reporting live from Baghdad as those ballistic missiles hit the same base, actually, that was targeted today. So it depends uh, on the story and, and the time. But when it warrants, we're there. 
U.S. troops are withdrawing from Afghanistan, obviously, this week. Um, I read somewhere that they're at 90 percent withdrawn, and uh, Joe Biden has set a deadline for September 11th to get uh, U.S. troops out of there. Are you planning on traveling to Afghanistan to cover the withdrawal of troops? I'm not sure what our coverage looks like right now on, on troop mm-hmm. withdrawal. I would imagine that there will be a correspondent on the ground at some point covering yeah. that deadline because it's a huge news story. And traditionally, you know, Fox from the early 2000s when the war started had been there you know, year after year covering this. All of the, the greats that work at Fox have, have been on the ground, on the front lines. Um, I was just looking at an article my colleague, uh, foreign correspondent Greg Powcott did talking about his time covering Kabul. And there were photos from Afghanistan back from 2001, 2002. So it gives you a bit of an idea of how long these correspondents have been covering this story. Are there more uh, Fox News correspondents, sort of on-air correspondents in the Middle East that are covering this? Uh, It depends on the story. So like, for example, last uh, month, or excuse me, it's been two months now, uh, two months ago in, in May, when the conflict erupted here, basically, like it is with any major story, Fox will flood resources to that particular story Mm. to make sure we can cover it from all angles. So at that time, we had um, my colleague, Amy Kellogg from Italy fly in. We had Greg Palcott from our our London bureau fly in. Uh, We had an additional cameraman fly in. We had our team here. So it was really a, a coordinated effort to make sure that we could not only be inside Gaza when journalists were allowed in, but also covering the eruption of, of chaos in Israel, in places like Lod, uh, where there was infighting, and places like Jerusalem, where we saw this conflict erupt from. So we wanted to make sure that we had correspondence all over so that we were covering every part of this story as it developed. And it was a good call by my bosses, because there were days where we had rocket fire from Gaza, and then suddenly rockets were being fired from uh, Palestinian factions in Lebanon. And then there was concern that Iranian-backed groups in Syria could get involved. So these stories are always moving and they're changing. So when we have teams like this on the ground, it gives us flexibility to make sure we're covering the story in a holistic way. And, you know, I think that's interesting. Just on on the topic of the the Israel-Palestine conflict, one phenomenon I think that always happens when there's a conflict abroad is that Americans will pay attention for as long as there are rockets flying and then they tune out. What was the aftermath of the Israel-Palestine conflict after the ceasefire? I mean, you've been on the ground there covering that. Um, Have there continued to be the updates? Yeah, absolutely. And I was really proud of our coverage when the rocket fire stopped. You know, we were 11 days straight covering this story, mostly in the southern cities that were getting hit the hardest with Hamas and Islamic Jihad rockets like Stirod, Ashkelon, Ashdod. But then the minute journalists were allowed into Gaza, that day we entered Gaza and linked up with people there that we work with, whether it's fixers or uh, producers. You know, Fox has people all over the world to make sure that when a story changes or it develops in one area, we have the people that we know and that we've worked with before and that we trust to help produce that story and get it out. So we went into Gaza right after the ceasefire was brokered, the day that journalists could go in. And throughout the conflict, we were advocating for access to Gaza because it's part of the story and it needs to be covered. And I was very proud of our coverage there. You know, we spoke with not just the militants from Hamas and Islamic Jihad, but the people who are affected by this conflict. You know, the byproduct of war is so often the civilians that live in these areas. And it's not just here, but when we're looking at this story, you know, we talked to some kids that were working with a trauma rehabilitation program. And it's always interesting talking to kids 
kids in the aftermath of war because they describe scenes that you would think traditionally only adults would be able to talk about. They talk about airstrikes and drones overhead and the injuries that they saw to their family members. And that can be tough, but it's part of the story and it's something that we need to cover, especially when there are a high number of civilian casualties. It's part of the story and we need to be there to tell that story. I'm curious as to what the people of Israel and also of Gaza were saying and feeling during that time. You obviously, yeah, you reported from the ground as rockets were being fired back and forth. And I feel like America often gets caught up in this sort of like partisan debate about, you know, who to blame between Israel and Hamas and in Gaza. What were you hearing on the ground there when you were talking to people both in Gaza and in Israel? I'm always amazed talking to people about politics and talking to people about war because there are these moments in, in my career that stand out where I have been in the middle of a, a story covering the news and suddenly uh, just this human bite come, comes out, like a, a sound bite where you just, it's a, a sound bite of life almost. You know, we're not even on camera. One time stands out to me in Gaza. It was in November of 2019 when the Israelis took out a senior Islamic Jihad commander. His name was Baha Abu Alata. And he was responsible for a lot of the rocket fire into these southern Israeli communities. And we happen to be covering a different story. We try to go to Gaza, not just when it's war, but also times of peace, because there are stories that need to be covered there. And so I had been there for a few days, had planned on coming out. And hours before I was scheduled to cross the border back into Israel, the Israelis launched this strike, taking out the commander and Islamic Jihad. And it led to days of fighting and rocket fire. And we were the only international network team inside Gaza. And it was significant fighting. I mean, heavy, heavy mm-hmm. fighting. Bodies being brought to the hospital, the Israelis taking out the rocket launching units from Islamic Jihad. And I remember amid this chaos, we were in Gaza City getting some supplies and we went to a paper store. And I asked this guy running the store, you know, what do you think about Hamas and their control over Gaza and the politics behind this and the Israeli airstrikes? And he said he was just trying to sell paper. He was like, I'm just trying to sell paper. And I stopped for a second because at the end of the day, there are so many civilians. There are 2 million people in Gaza and they're not militants, the majority of the people, they're civilians. And when you ask them what they want to do, a lot of times they want to go to this really famous ice cream shop in Gaza City that has really, really great ice cream, or they want to make sure they make it to their volleyball league that got canceled as a result of the war. And I think those stories get missed a lot. And I think yeah. it's our responsibility as journalists to humanize a story and not just talk about the rockets and the bullets and the bombs, but also about the people. Now, I feel like American media can sometimes have a fairly myopic view of foreign conflict. Do you think that they did a good job of capturing what was actually going on in the fight between Israel and the, and the Palestinians? I do. I, I okay. think a- across the board right now, there are some of the best foreign correspondents our industry has seen. Mm. And I think they do a, a fantastic job. A lot of the veterans that go into cover Gaza or, or cover this conflict have been doing it for decades. They understand the nuances of it. Um, I think our team did a really fantastic job on the ground covering not only Gaza, but also Israel. You know, we were in the communities in the South as literally thousands of rockets were being fired there. And I think oftentimes in our reporting, we got beyond just the rocket fire, but we got into what this means for, for people who are sleeping in bomb shelters, who are missing school, who had to cancel their summer vacation, 
um, I think we really got to the core of, of the conflict and we were able to tell the story in a way that people understood and were able to consume. And I'm always thinking about that, right? Because there's, there are these conversations when you talk about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and people want to say, well, you know, if you work here, you're going to cover this story. If you work there, you're going to cover that story. Look, we have to basically do the best job we can as the team out here to explain to people what's happening and to put it into context. Mm-hmm. And I'm always proud to say our crew can, in the same month, meet with leadership from Hamas and Islamic Jihad inside Gaza and also be on the plane with the prime minister traveling to a destination, talking to leadership from both sides, getting their way of thinking, trying to get into the minds of the leaders to understand why they are doing what they're doing and why they're calling the shots they're calling. And when we have that information, we can put it into a package or into a, a live hit. I think our viewers are better served because they can understand the nuances of this conflict. Now, you've gotten caught in some fairly dangerous situations while you've been reporting uh, throughout the Middle East from Gaza to Iraq. Was there ever a moment where you felt like your life was in danger? There have been a couple moments. You know, Fox, I think, goes beyond what they even have to to keep us safe. You know, and we always have these conversations before we go out in the field, and it, it changes based on the location, right? So if we're in a place like Gaza, I don't like to travel with a, a heavy crew in an armored car because then we stand out. And mm-hmm. I want to blend in there. There are places, though, where kidnappings and assassinations are so common, you don't have that option. And, you know, Fox takes no shortcut when it comes to safety. There have been times in Baghdad last year after the the death of Soleimani, there were targets on the backs of Americans. They wanted to kidnap or, or kill Americans in response. They were There was frustration among certain portions of, of, of the Iraqi people, particularly the Iranian-backed Iraqi Shia militias. And in, in that case, we are traveling with gunmen and armored vehicles to ensure that if we are ambushed, you know, we can try to stay safe and get out of the situation. There have been times, you know, under rocket fire, even this this past conflict where you can see where the rockets are landing. And you hear it in, in my reporting. I try to bring it into the stories that we do and the live shots that we do to let viewers understand what they are hearing and what they're seeing because you'll, you'll hear it. Sometimes I'm calling out to my team, guys, get under the car, get under the car. Uh, look at me, follow me, listen, wait, we're going to count to three and move. And those are times where I legitimately feel that we are in danger. And I want to make sure that my crew is safe because at the end of the day, we can't get the story and we can't bring our viewers the news if we're injured or killed. And there are times where we are reporting amid incoming rocket fire in, incoming mortar rounds the potential of sniper fire, you know, all of these things are happening at once and you need to make a calculation, even if you're live on air, about where you need to be standing. And if we need to get out of there, we get out of there. Now, have you picked up some Arabic uh, since uh, reporting from Jerusalem or, uh, or do, you, do you work with interpreters, <laughs> I imagine? You know, we try to at least have some basic level of, of greetings to, you know, make people feel comfortable when I'm around. Um, you know, the bureau people are speaking uh, an Arabic speaker, Hebrew speakers, you know, it's, hmm. I'm always very comfortable when I'm with my team, because I know that if I get into a communication issue anywhere in the world, you know, they're there to back me up and ensure that everyone understands we're on the same page. And what is it like building sources as a foreign correspondent? I can imagine that's a little bit harder than doing that sort of reporting domestically, where, you know, you just rock up at the White House press shop and uh, start talking to people. 
It's a great question because when I used to live in DC, you could do just that, hang out. You know, you meet someone, you say, hey, why don't we go over to uh, Pete's Coffee and yeah. you know, grab a, a, a double espresso and, and talk <laughs> politics. Here, it's a little bit different. You know, we've got really strong field producers here. Um, you're not freeling, for example. She's my main producer on Israel issues and, and politics here. Ibrahim Hasbon doing uh, Palestinian territories and other parts of the of the Arab world. You know, they're some of the best in the business. We, you know, oftentimes we we often talk about these conflicts and and the wars and the big sort of flashy stories, and they're important and right. And we we try to bring in as much information as we can from our sources in those stories. But there's been a lot of stories that we we've broken throughout my time here. You know, back in 2019, we were given information by Western intelligence sources, and this is actually one benefit that sort of will answer your question too. We can use sources that are not only locally based, but also based in the United States. You know, it, it's a combination sometimes depending on the story and sometimes even working with, with our teams at the Pentagon or the State Department. Um, but this particular story, we spoke with Western intelligence sources who told us the Iranians were building basically what was internally considered a classified military base in Eastern Syria. And we were like, wow, this is a huge story. Like, how do we track this down? Ultimately, we were able to get the coordinates of the base and we used a civilian satellite company to find this base and then we had analysts look at the images and it was just that it, and it was a, a major story i mean there's been times where we've tracked tankers illegally smuggling oil and they've been sanctioned by the u.s government in the weeks to follow uh we've followed weapons smuggling operations in terms of actually sourcing up it can be difficult but the cool part about this bureau is that they've been here for so long and they they know a lot of the players and they've, they've got a deep understanding of who's calling the shots, especially in this part of the world. And so I was able to use the, the knowledge that I, that I gained in Washington on how to develop sources combined with the relationships that my team here had built and sort of just step right into it and, and start these conversations. And of course, you know, depending on the story, sometimes it'll be a story that's not related to here, maybe with the Iraqis, a story we broke recently about the alert level being raised for uh, US forces in Iraq based on some significant threats by Iranian-backed militias. You know, those are sources that we develop along the way in, in travels and, and these things. And that's why I think also the executives are very, very supportive of us getting out in the field because they understand it's not just about the live shots. It's not just about the story of the day, but there's also some significant homework you've got to do and, and work you've got to put in behind the scenes to be able to support your reporting. And now, speaking of Afghanistan, um, the deadline is is September 11th for troop withdrawal. And now some American generals are warning that uh, the Taliban insurgency paired with the U.S. exit are putting the country on the path to civil war. Do you get a sense from speaking to people in the region that people there feel like that's inevitable? When you talk to people about peace broadly in the Middle East, it can be a, a joke to some people who have lived here for a long time. Um, I think our job as journalists is always to take these efforts for peace seriously. And when there are summits in the Gulf, for example, and during the last administration, when they started these conversations with the Taliban, you know, you've got to take attempts at peace seriously. We, we talk about this a lot with the Egyptians and the Qataris as it relates to the Israelis and the Palestinians and conflict with Gaza. I think there's an understanding, especially from journalists who have covered specifically Afghanistan for a long time, that the idea of, of peace in a region that has so often been consumed by conflict 
is difficult to wrap your, your mind around. But I think it's our role to always cover those efforts and understand that there will always be people who are working towards peace, despite the fact that you are still seeing conflict erupt. You're seeing, as we speak right now, the Taliban in Afghanistan launching a major offensive against a, a district in the north, the capital of a district in the north. And that's just the reality on the ground. And you've got to cover then that operation. Now, there are still ongoing efforts to try to cut some sort of long-term agreement between the Afghan government and the Taliban, but you've got to look at it through a critical lens, understand the players involved, understand who benefits from even the concept of peace talks, whether it's the Russians, whether it's a, a player in the Gulf, whether it's a, another country, and then you've got to put that into context and understand that whether it's Afghanistan, whether it's Syria, whether it's Libya, whether it's um, Yemen, peace talks are inevitable, but the, the concept of long-term peace, like I said, when you talk to people here and you say, well, how about peace between the Israelis and the Palestinians? Sometimes they bulk at that, at that idea. One thing that I'm curious also about is sort of what the sentiment is regarding the withdrawal itself. On the one hand, the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan wasn't entirely welcome there. But if the alternative is civil war, you know, do, do Afghanis and do officials fear you know, the, the American withdrawal at this point? Do they want the American presence in Afghanistan to end? Look, I think a lot of top generals, and I, I'd point you to our reporting from people like Jennifer Griffin and Lucas Tomlinson over at the Pentagon, because their coverage of Afghanistan has been spot on, especially amid the withdrawal. And I know you, you spoke with Jennifer uh, on the podcast. I did, yeah. But, you know, they're the ones I think most tuned in with the, the top American leadership on mm. Afghanistan. But, you know, when you watch their reporting, you do get a sense that there is concern about the future of Afghanistan, right? It's 20 years working towards a, a specific goal. And now you're seeing the Taliban make significant territorial gains. And there will be people in the military echelon who say, well, what for? You know, why, why did we, we go through all of that? And, mm. you know, I don't think it's our role to have an opinion on it, despite yeah. the fact that some journalists you talk to may have an opinion on it. I think our job is to tell people, what's happening, who we've talked to, what their statements are about a specific part of a conflict, if we're looking at Afghanistan, and then to update our viewers about what this means actually for the future of the region, because that actually will bring us to our next concern for European powers, for example. They're worried that if the Taliban takes over Afghanistan, that it could mean disaster for European countries in the future um, because of the, the fallout of, a, of an unstable state. And, uh, and I think that that's a, a real concern, not only in a place like Afghanistan, but also as we've seen in Syria. Now, one big topic of conversation that always happens when there is a change in presidents is how the new administration is being received overseas. Do you have a sense of what opinion is like on Biden when it comes to the Middle East? Is there any, is there more optimism? Is there more pessimism since the change from Trump to Biden? It depends on who you ask, because a lot of Israelis that we <laughs> interviewed really liked Trump, and mm -hmm. he made some decisions for the conservative Israeli population that were very popular among the people who supported the former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, recognizing the Golan Heights as part of Israel was uh, one, one major concept put forth by the, the Trump administration that was very popular. Um, settlement recognition in a limited capacity, recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. You know, there were these decisions that were made by President Trump that were very popular among a portion of the Israeli population. And a lot of those people are in Jerusalem. Broadly looking at the Middle East though, when you, when you talk about a new administration, I think President Biden strikes 
on the Iraq-Syria border last month were a major signal to Iran and Iranian-backed militias about the new administration. And I think that those strikes actually set a new standard for what we're going to see from the administration. There, there were questions about how directly responsive the new administration would be to aggressive actions against American troops who are still operating in Iraq and Syria. And remember, those troops are there for the fight against ISIS. And there are still around 2,500 troops in Iraq, for example, working to fight ISIS. And I think that as we see these actions taken against bases in Iraq, for example, that house American troops, you, it's inevitable that you will st see continued responses, whether they are diplomatic in nature, the Americans, Washington trying to speak with Baghdad directly to have an understanding about what the line of action will be for when the Americans will be accepted in terms of their responses by the, the Iraqis. And then I think inevitably you will have the Iraqis in a difficult political situation to say, you know, they, they have their own political pressure. And I think that's why we saw last month with President Biden uh, calling in those strikes. You saw pressure from Iraqi politicians, some of which who said, hey, that was an illegal act. They shouldn't have uh, acted on sovereign territory without the permission of, of the Iraqi military. So it's a complex issue. But in terms of broadly speaking, the, the Biden administration from Trump administration, some people are saying we're seeing more of the same. Others are, are hopeful that there could be some breakthroughs in certain areas and, and certain conflicts. But it, it, as you can see, I'll, I'll often kind of dive down into one particular conflict because each has its own mm. set of, of nuances, right? Like we could have a whole one hour podcast talking about what the Biden administration policy on Yemen, for example, means mm. for the relationship between Saudi Arabia and the US. Is that, I can imagine that jumping around to so many different conflicts in the region. I mean, do you just like when you're, when you're told that you're being sent to, you know, uh, one country or another is told you're being sent to Baghdad. Do you, I mean, do you just frantically read up on what's going on there at the time and try and sort of make sure that you're as well-versed in the conflict as possible. I, I love the news. I'm, I'm a news nerd and I'm like mm. constantly reading the news. You know, last night I'm out with some friends, got back from work and, you know, I'm kind of on Twitter the whole time watching updates out of Iraq to see what these Iranian militias are, are doing and uh, these Iranian back militias are doing and, and what this means for U.S. forces in the area. I, I love the news. So I'm like constantly reading about news. So I, I try to be pretty well-versed. And I think that that comes in handy even when we're not traveling, right? Because Sometimes you got to jump in the studio and be able to talk for five minutes on a, a topic because something has happened. I remember when the, the embassy uh, storming happened back uh, beginning of 2020, end, end of 2019, beginning of 2020. Um, you know, we had to be ready to go and talk about these Iranian backed Iraqi Shia militias that otherwise you wouldn't really often read about, maybe average media consumer, but it's something that just being in the region, uh, we talk about a lot. I think the, the more difficult part for me is actually the adjustment personally from conflict to conflict, from conflict back to normalcy, it can be kind of difficult because, you know, you're in the middle of a barrage of rockets on a Friday and that Monday, maybe you're back on the beach yeah. hanging out with your friends because you've got a day off. And I think that actually for me is the more difficult part. The reading up on the, on the news and being up to date on, on the region is not difficult for me. I love doing it. I think it's the, the personal side that I find the most challenging. I did actually want to ask you about that. I feel like it must be a really strange phenomenon to go out and report in war zones and then return to Tel Aviv and go out to dinner. Like, what is your social life like at this point? Look, I, I have a good group of friends in, in Tel Aviv. I've adjusted 
in here like you would anywhere. I kind of left my life behind to move here, but I was yeah. pursuing my dream and I'm currently living my dream, which is a really unique sentence to say because you spend so many years of your life wanting to be a foreign correspondent and then suddenly you're in the middle of it and it's just as awesome as you, you think it would be. It's an adventure every day and it's exciting and I love doing it. Um, I think mental health and journalism is something that people don't talk about a lot. It's a, a taboo topic, and I think it needs to be discussed more. It's it's something mm -hmm. that I've personally had to take into my own hands. You know, I I, I have no shame in in saying I really put a focus on mental health following a conflict because oftentimes you are in the middle of a, a war. You are there on the worst day of someone's life. You know, we've been at funerals when parents have had to bury their children. We have stood next to piles of rubble as rescue workers have dug through trying to find survivors in the aftermath of a blast. We've been inside the coronavirus intensive care unit as um, people my age, you know, have, have fought for their lives. And it, it, I, would be, I would be misleading to say it doesn't take a, a toll because it does. Yeah. And I think that, you know, we have to talk about it more as an industry and I do everything I can personally when I'm transitioning from these times, despite how uncomfortable it can feel to take my life into my own hands. And whether that's meditation, I, I meditate a lot. Sometimes I meditate in the field. Uh, even this last conflict, there was a time right when the rocket fire started where we're in the car headed towards uh, the front line. And I told my crew, hey, I need a few minutes. Just give me some time. And I did some breathing exercises and, and meditated for a little bit. Um, it's difficult. Look, it, it's, you are, are witnessing sometimes the worst of the human experience. Um, it's also a privilege, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I think we have to remember that it's a, it's an opportunity cost, but for me, it's worth it, right? Because I, I have a, an immense sense of, of urgency. And I, I have a, a really strong sense of responsibility to tell these stories. And the, the baggage sometimes that you, you return home with, I can, I can sort through that when I get home, but when we're in the field and we're there on the front line, it's the story and your adrenaline's pumping, you are focused and you're ready to go because you have a job to do. Now, do, do you, do you hang out with some other foreign correspondents where like socially, I mean, I imagine that that's probably like a good way to deal with the mental health aspect of it. If you're like friends with other people who are doing the same type of work as you. Yeah. Look, I mean, the, the cool part is that, uh, everyone who comes through Jerusalem or Tel Aviv, you know, they, they have something in common. Um, Ian Lee, who's now at CBS, he was at CNN before, was a good friend. Um, Felicia Schwartz, Wall Street Journal, you know, my friends here, uh, some of them are journalists, some of them are not. Um, my friends at home, most of them are, are journalists. Most of my friends from the mm -hmm. United States, you know, my, my best friends are, are journalists. Uh, Jeremy Diamond, CNN White House correspondent, Finn Gomez, who's a CBS White House producer. You know, so being able to talk shop with those guys and, you know, we come out of a conflict, their first question is always like, how are you? Yeah. You all right, man? Like you, <laughs> you're, you're cool. You know, we, yeah. we were watching your, your coverage, awesome work. You know, we talk a little bit about that. And then we, we talk about life because, you know, whether it's people based here or, or people based stateside, everyone has some experience in this industry with tragedy and, and death and destruction, you know, Miami yeah. right now. And, United States. People are, are covering this story. How many shootings in the United States have, have our colleagues covered? And it takes a toll. Um, mm. And 
and it's something that I think the industry has to understand and, and be delicate about and, and understanding of when people need to say, hey, I need a minute or I, I need a day to really just regroup and, and think about this because it, there are, there are um, things you have to really sort through and uh, you've got to take the time to do it because we've got to get back out to work and we've got a job to do. Yeah. Now, um, I, I'm curious, you know, Israel was one of the first countries to really get COVID under control thanks to vaccinations. Is life pretty much back to normal in Israel right now? Um, it was back to normal for a while. Now the mm. Delta variant, like around the world, has threatened that normalcy. There are meetings ongoing with the coronavirus cabinet and the new government of Naftali Bennett. It appears for right now that the new government is trying their hardest to keep things under control and basically create a situation where, you know, mask mandates are back for indoor areas if you're mm -hmm. around a group of people. Um, they're trying to avoid going back into a formal lockdown because there was a heavy price the economy here in Israel paid. So it's not totally back to normal, but life certainly feels much closer to normal. You know, people are out going to the beach, going to restaurants, and really just trying to to pick life back up again after a really difficult year. Now, uh, at the end of the Trump administration, you didn't hesitate to call out that administration or comments from leaders like Trump or uh, Defense Secretary Mark Esper when it conflicted with what you were witnessing on the ground. And it did seem like you were really frustrated with that sort of disconnect. Is that how you felt? Is that like an accurate way to describe that? I, I wouldn't say frustrated because I really try, especially covering conflict, to keep my emotions mm. out of my reporting. Yeah. You know, I think I'm, I'm a big advocate for the truth, right? So if there there's a public official on any side of the aisle lying. I think it's our job as journalists to hold them accountable. I think wherever you are, whatever administration you're covering, whatever government you're covering, you're going to encounter politicians who try to spin the media, who try to, to not tell the truth for their own benefit. And that's part of our role as the fourth estate to ensure that we're holding them accountable. So I was never afraid to to hold those officials accountable. I won't be afraid to hold the officials in the new administration accountable uh, because when you're covering foreign policy, there are real world consequences, the words and actions that are taken by an American administration. And as an American network, you know, we are, are there reporting uh, and we've got our teams at the White House, the Pentagon, State Department, you know, abroad, our, our, our offices abroad. And, and we've got to do a, a, a holistic job to tell the story in a, in a fair and accurate way. And I think we do a good job of that. Now, before you joined Fox News, you made some headlines with tough questions for Trump uh, spokespeople like Sarah Huckabee Sanders. And you did so at One American News Network, or OAN, which will probably shock some listeners who know who now see that channel in a different light. W what do you think of OAN as it exists now? Look, my focus has always been to tell the truth, to mm -hmm. do my job to the best of my ability. And, you know, I'm, I'm not someone who focuses too much on the, on the past. One, uh, one sentence that I really, it really resonates with me day to day in, in my life, professionally and personally, it's always today. And, and today, you know, my focus is on trying to figure out more about the incoming Iranian president, Ibrahim Raisi, and what's going to happen next in Yemen uh, to these civilians who are starving. So, you know, my focus is really on the Middle East right now. I uh, had a feeling you would answer that in a frustratingly diplomatic way. Um, now, just, uh, you know, it's not speaking about today, but speaking about the future. What do you see as the major stories that you are going to be covering uh, for the next couple months to a year? Yeah, I mean, look, the, the stories are, 
are really endless here, but I think mm. a couple of ones that really stand out to me that I'm, I'm personally interested in, you know, because, because of our past coverage, Lebanon, I think is, is such a major story right now. The economy in Lebanon is suffering so, so gravely that any day, you know, and, and the prime minister himself or acting prime minister, acting government rather, have, have warned of this, uh, of, of chaos that could erupt as a result of people literally starving. I mean, the, the situation in Lebanon, the, the coronavirus outbreak, the port explosion, taking out the main way that the Lebanese people get food, the, the massive collapse of the, the Lebanese lira. If you can't exchange money in Lebanon on the black market using the US dollar, it, it's difficult to survive. And that's the situation for so many of the, of the Lebanese people. Um, that's one story I think that inevitably we are going to be following extremely closely. Um, Yemen is another story that I think, you know, broadly across the industry doesn't get enough coverage, it, but it's such an I agree, important yeah. story. I've been thankful, you know, on our, our podcast uh, that we're doing, uh, Fox News Radio, the evening edition, uh, Fox News Rundown podcast, you know, we've been able to cover some developments out of Yemen and uh, other stories people might have missed. We try to, every Monday we do stories people might have missed. In addition to our other stories that we cover throughout the week, and I always try to dive into places like Yemen, uh, Lebanon, what life looks like for civilians in Syria post uh, what was a, a time where the international community was so focused at the height of the civil war. And now it's kind of dropped from the headlines. But I think that mm. I'm always thankful when we have the opportunity to dive into those topics. So I think, look, uh, Lebanon, Yemen, um, Another story, and it's not really Middle East focused, but it's something that we, we also have talk, talked about on the podcast a, a decent amount. I think China is going to be a, a massive story. You know, mm. some of the actions by the Chinese in the South China Sea, um, some of their recent statements, statements by Xi Jinping about Taiwan and the ongoing tension in Hong Kong. I think China inevitably will be a, a story that you'll see a lot more coverage of. And, and I think I'm personally interested to see how it develops because it will put the Biden administration in a difficult position. There will be some serious decisions and red lines they have to draw. And like we saw during the Trump administration, during the Obama administration, when those red lines are drawn, there are people in the international community, journalists, uh, depending on the, uh, the story we're talking about, the United Nations, um, international aid organizations that really want to see what is said done. They want, they want to see that, that red line and they want to understand it. You know, uh, as journalists, our job is to understand it and, and to hold officials accountable for what they say about it. Um, NGOs, their job is, you know, to advocate for their position and many times for uh, human rights. But I, I think China is going to be one of those really difficult situations for the Biden administration because you look at the Uyghurs in China. You, I mean, the, the list goes on of human rights violations mm -hmm. that are we we see evidence of, um, and it's China's a massive player on the international stage, and it, and it's just something that I think inevitably we're going to talk about. And there's also a growing pressure for an I think for the first time for an administration actually feeling serious pressure to do something about what China's doing. But, uh, but yeah, we'll we'll look forward to watching you cover all of that, Trey Yangst. Uh, appreciate you joining me today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Interview. Please subscribe to The Interview on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and check out coverage of my conversation with Trey Yangst on Mediate.com.